Praise the Lord. Welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We are moving away very quickly from chapter 1. We want to get into chapter 2, which is when the Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost. But we still have a little bit more ground to cover in chapter 1. Uh, let me make a few introductory remarks, and then we want to move right into some new material tonight. Uh, the notes and the recordings for each one of these sessions are available online at new-life-ministries.org. Uh, you can also subscribe uh, on your smartphone or other device to the New Life Ministries podcast. And the nice thing about that, you get all of the messages and the notes automatically sent to your phone. Uh, for instance, Sunday's message that we did in the church, the notes and the recording have already been posted on that, so you would have gotten it on your phone by now. And, of course, last week's Bible study would be on there also. Um, number of ways that you can get the notes, but I strongly encourage you to download and print out the notes so you have them in front of you as we go through these. Um, I'm going to tell you already, uh, I've got about 104 pages of notes, and that just takes us up through uh, Acts chapter 9. There are 28 chapters in the book, so uh, quite a lot of notes we're going to have by the time we finish this. The title of this part that we're in, part 2, which covers chapter 1 of Acts, we've entitled Waiting for the Promise. And I want to pick up right where we left off last week because this is such an important point that we all need to get. And if you are in the outline notes, we're on page 12, um, at the top of page 12, where you see the word wait. And let me go through this again quickly. In Luke chapter 24, Luke, the writer of Luke, of course, is also the writer of Acts. And so Luke 24 overlaps with Acts 1. Some of the same events are recorded both times because, remember, Acts is sort of like volume 2 of Luke's book. And so he picks up where he left off at the end of volume 1, with the resurrection of Christ and, ultimately, his ascension back into heaven. You find that both in Luke 24, and we'll see, hopefully tonight, in Acts 1, it's repeated again, his ascension up in a cloud into heaven. But before he ascended, and I hate to keep repeating this, but it's so important I will, these apostles had been with Jesus three and a half years. They had heard all of his teachings, preachings, parables, sermons, etc. They had seen all of his miracles. They had been with him for so many amazing things. Walking on water, changing water to wine, raising the dead, casting out demons. They had seen and even participated in some of those activities themselves. Now he's risen from the dead. And we saw last time, he stayed around for 40 more days after he was resurrected just to spend time with these apostles, convincing them that he was risen from the dead and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And at the end of that 40-day period is when he finally ascends back up to his father. But before ascending... He tells them in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. Referring, of course, to the promise, the Holy Spirit. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
That word stay, if you look it up in the original Greek, it's quite graphic. It means sit down. Basically, what he's telling these apostles, even after his three and a half years of training and discipleship and personally mentoring these guys, he says, you're not ready yet. You're not prepared yet for the work I've called you to do. Sit down, stay right here in Jerusalem until, and I want you to pay close attention to the words, until, he doesn't say until you speak in tongues, no mention of speaking in tongues. He says, until you have been clothed or endued, it reads in King James, with power. And Luke picks right up on that same theme in Acts 1. It was power that they needed. It was power that they were waiting for there in the upper room. And so when we come to Acts 1, it says in verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This was not a suggestion. It was a command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Sit down and wait. Don't go anywhere. Don't try to do any ministry. Don't do anything until wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God has been speaking to me over and over through this portion of Scripture and reminding me personally, I can't do anything without the power of God. I may know certain things now, I may know certain Bible verses, but I still can't really accomplish the work that God called me to do without the power of God. And likewise, God speaks to each one of us, sit down and wait until until you are filled with the power of God. Where are we going to get that power? From the Holy Spirit. And specifically, we saw last time, several different terms are used for the same experience. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving the gift of the Father, or the promise of the Father. And that helps us to remember this isn't something we earn. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. It's a promise that the Father has already made to every single one of his children. And we'll find that even more clearly in Acts chapter 2. But I want you to notice that up until now, there's been no mention of what exactly is going to happen when the Holy Spirit does come on them, except for one thing, power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That word we've already studied is dunamis, dynamite, dynamic. And when this kind of power comes, believe you me, you're going to know it. Nobody's going to need to tell you power just came into your life. This is real power, dynamic power that will come upon you and in you when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be clothed, endued with power. And so his command to the apostles was, wait, stay right here in Jerusalem, literally sit down until you are filled with power. That's why we've entitled this section on chapter 1, Waiting for the Promise. Or we could even say, Waiting for Power. That's what they were told to wait for. Wait for power. And, let me go a step further now, and this leads into what we want to talk about tonight. When that power comes, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power... And don't misunderstand me, we're going to eventually talk about 
what happened on the day of Pentecost and how they spoke in tongues. They spoke in other languages. We'll talk about the gifts, the manifestations, the sign of the Holy Spirit. But up until now, all they've been told is wait until you get power. And even in Acts 1.8, all he says is when that power comes on you, it will be so that you can become witnesses, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. We saw in our introduction that Acts 1.8 actually gives us an outline of the whole book of Acts. It's going to start in Jerusalem, then it will eventually move to Judea and Samaria, and then finally it's going to go out to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Key word here we need to look at a little more carefully. You will be my witnesses when that power of the Holy Spirit comes on you. Very interesting. The word here in Greek is martus, M-A-R-T-U-S. It means a witness, but it's also used in the New Testament in a totally different way for martyr. For instance, Stephen, the first martyr, the Christian who died for his faith, we'll come to that in Acts 7, he's referred to with this same word. So he was more than just a witness, like an eyewitness testifying in court. He became a martyr. And I think the two words are combined in the meaning of this. You're going to receive such a power that you will even be willing to die as my witness. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And how many thousands and thousands and thousands of martyrs have followed in the footsteps of Stephen? We're continuing to see thousands of martyrs each year in the world today. Many Christians aren't aware of that, but thousands of Christians are being put to death for their faith, beheaded, sawed in half with chainsaws, terrible brutalities are being done to Christians, but they received power to be a witness for Jesus. So, this power was specifically so that they could be an eyewitness for Jesus Christ. And we need to think about that for a minute. It means when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to start opening your mouth. You're going to start testifying to others about Jesus Christ, particularly testifying about his resurrection. He is the Messiah. He is Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's coming again. And now, because of the Holy Spirit in my life, I can boldly testify to that truth. Now, I've given you a number of scriptures from the book of Acts where this word appears. Uh, you'll have those for your own reference. The same word was used in Luke 24, verse 48, where Jesus told them, you are witnesses of these things. Now, wait, stay here until you're clothed with power. In Acts 1.22, it talks about being a witness of his resurrection. Just like an eyewitness would have to take the stand and testify in a court trial, we are standing before the court of human opinion, and we're testifying, Jesus rose from the dead. We are witnesses of that fact. Acts 2.32, Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would later write that there were over 500 
eyewitnesses who saw Jesus risen back to life after his obvious death on the cross. Now, we aren't eyewitnesses in that sense. We weren't there to see it with our own eyes. But the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and resurrection, comes into us, and we can also boldly testify, I know that Jesus is risen from the dead. Again, in Acts 3.15, we are witnesses of the fact God raised him from the dead. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things. Acts 10.41, uh, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. Acts 13.31, they are now witnesses. But I want to draw your attention in particular to this verse. Acts 22.30, I'm sorry, 22.20, the Apostle Paul is giving his own personal testimony of how he had once persecuted the church. And you may remember, we're going to learn this when we get to Acts 7 and 8, when Stephen became the first martyr in the church, Paul was standing right there. He saw the death of Stephen, and this is what he says in his testimony, Acts 22.20, When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there, giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Okay? <clears throat> As I mentioned at the beginning tonight, the word that is translated martyr there is the same Greek word, martus, witness. But he's not just a witness. When the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval. So, it doesn't say when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will give you the ability to speak in tongues. That would happen. But that wasn't the emphasis here. The emphasis is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive power and you're going to receive boldness to be my witness. To open your mouth and testify to family, friends, whomever. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, I hope you can picture this. Acts 1.8, he's just finished telling them, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're, you're going to receive power. And he's already told them, commanded them actually, wait, sit down, tarry, until you receive the Holy Spirit. Right after making that statement in verse 8, he starts going up right before their eyes. Acts 1.9, let's read this again. Let me read verse 8 again so you get the context. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Man, oh man, if these guys haven't been convinced by now that Jesus is Lord and Christ and risen from the dead, now they're literally seeing him going up in the air, ascending back to the Father. No wonder they had no doubt in their mind after that that he was Lord and Christ, risen from the dead. Nevertheless, they've still been told, sit down, wait until. But right before their very eyes, it says, he was taken up from them. They actually witnessed the ascension 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as we know, they were the only ones who were privy to such an amazing event. And no wonder it says they were looking intently <clears throat> up into the sky as he was going. Now, back to page 13, if you're jumping around like I am, the Ascension. I mentioned that the Ascension is also mentioned in chapter 24 of Luke, but we learn more in what we just read in Acts 9 to 11. The apostles actually saw him going up, and it mentions these two men dressed in white. It's generally presumed that they are the same two angels that are mentioned in Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, at the empty tomb. It's also mentioned in John and Matthew, after the resurrection of Jesus, these angels that were there by the tomb. So, angels are there, ushering him back to the Father, and announcing to these apostles that the same way you've just seen him go up in a cloud, he will come back. So they're already hearing more about his second coming. He's going to return. You just saw him leave, but he's going to come back again in the same way in a cloud. Luke records this in Luke 21, verse 27. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, referring to his second coming. And John 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be with me where I am. We're not going to go into any depth now about the second coming of Christ, but suffice it to say that right here in Acts 1, we're again introduced to that promise that he's going to come back again just as they watched him ascend up to the Father. But we want to move a little further along here in Acts 1, and let's read the next three verses, Acts 1, 12 through 14. <clears throat> right after that, after his ascension, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. You probably know it as the upper room. They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There are some fascinating details in these few verses. First of all, every detail in the Word of God is significant, and the deeper you dig into God's Word, the more treasures you mine out of it. And in verse 12, by no coincidence, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. Olives, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, are mentioned frequently, they were grown particularly so that they could be crushed to produce the oil that was used for lamps and for anointing. The anointing oil, which is a very clear symbol of the Holy Spirit, came from the olive. How interesting. They're now coming from the Mount of Olives to go sit down and tarry, wait until the anointing of the oil of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. John, in his 
epistle, 1 John 2.27, he says, you have an anointing. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that they had received. And in the Old Testament, you could not minister, you could not be a priest without being anointed with this oil that, again, it came from crushing the olives, squeezing out, pressing the oil from the olives. By the way, there is a mistake in the notes, if you are following there, here under letter A, where we're discussing this, um, the scripture reference is given there, Luke 24.32, that is not correct. It should be Leviticus chapter 24, verses 2 to 4. In Leviticus 24, it describes how they would take the oil pressed from olives and put it into the lamps of the golden lampstand, which, again, is a picture of the Holy Spirit burning in the church. In Revelation chapter 1, John saw the risen Christ in the midst of seven golden lampstands, uh, which is pictured in the tabernacle here in the Old Testament with those seven lamps burning with the olive oil in each one of them, and they had to burn continuously. So, <clears throat> by no coincidence, they're coming from the Mount of Olives. Just a further confirmation that God is about to anoint them with the real oil of the Holy Spirit, the real anointing of His Spirit. Now, some other interesting details here. We're going to learn in verse 15, we didn't read there yet, but this entire group in the upper room numbers about 120. The numbers given in verse 15, about 120 believers joined together. That's what we want to talk about here. They were in one accord, some translations say. They were together in one place, and literally the word means together with one passion. If we want real revival, if we want a real anointing of the Holy Spirit to come into our churches, there are a couple of things we can learn from chapter 1. Number one, they were waiting in faith for the promise of God. They already knew that this was promised them, they're waiting. Secondly, it says that they joined together. They were in harmony. They were in unity. There were no schisms, no little cliques and divided groups, and uh, one group feels one way and another group has a different idea. They were united. They were in harmony. And that is so important. God help us to come into that kind of unity where we all have the same passion, we all have the same desire. And what can often disturb that unity is when we have our own desire. We have our own passion, we have our own ambition, and James 4 says that's where fights come from. I want something for me, you want something for you, and we clash. But you know, if we all die to ourselves and our selfish interests, and we all have one interest, that's the interest of Christ, then it's very easy to come together in unity and harmony. The Bible says how beautiful it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And then it goes right on to say, it's like the oil, the anointing oil that came upon Aaron's head and flowed down on his garments all the way to his feet. Note the connection. Unity and harmony, an anointing that comes upon the whole body of the high priest. Well, our high priest is not Aaron, it's Jesus. Our anointing is not oil from an olive tree. Our anointing is the Holy Spirit. But if we want the fullness of that anointing, head to toe, the whole body of Christ, 
endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to have to have this kind of unity, joining together in prayer. No prayer, no Pentecost. No prayer, no revival. Uh, we like to think that we can use some method or some formula to get the Holy Spirit to come down. If we want the Holy Spirit to move in power in our lives and in the church, I'll tell you a secret. It's the same old way they've been doing it for centuries. Fasting, prayer, seeking God earnestly. It won't come any other way. They join together constantly in prayer. Constantly in prayer. And I've given you some references in the notes. We're not going to look at all these. Prayer is a very important theme throughout the book of Acts. This is how the church began. These introductory verses in chapter 1 are very important for us to understand what is going to happen in chapter 2. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's going to come. But in chapter 1, they're preparing for that. And if we want that power to come, we have to prepare in the same way. They got rid of all their differences, all their uh, you know, grievances against one another. I'm sure during that 10 days, I'm being told that it is not recording. I'm going to continue because my phone says it is. Try turning it off and rebooting it. I'm going to continue. Um, prayer is mentioned 32 times in the book of Acts. Uh, I listed all 32 of those references if you want to look them up, but it must be pretty important if from beginning to end, literally from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28, prayer, prayer, prayer in the book of Acts. And during the 10 days that they were in the upper room, praying together, seeking God, there must have been a lot of other things going on. Maybe confessions, maybe reconciliations, maybe um, repentance for sins and things in their lives. But by the end of that ten days, they were in one accord. They were like an orchestra. Every instrument in tune with all the other instruments, and they are ready for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. A couple of other details I want to touch on here. It says in verse 14, along with the apostles, there were the women, and specifically Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Very interesting. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. We'll never hear about her again. We don't know exactly what happened to her, but I'll tell you one thing we know. Mary was in the upper room. Mary got filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Mary became a Pentecostal. She became a Spirit-baptized tongue-speaking Pentecostal. And one of the reasons why I think the scriptures are deliberately silent after this about Mary is to ensure against any kind of Mary worship, such as what has become prevalent in the Catholic Church. Mary was not being prayed to by any of the other disciples, she was praying for the Holy Spirit, just like all of the rest of them. And notice, again, the Word of God is very specific. It says in verse 14, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not Mary, the mother of God. Nowhere in the New Testament is Mary referred to as the mother of God. Now, we all understand that Jesus is God. 
But the fact that it specifies the mother of Jesus is emphasizing the human aspect. Jesus is the name of our Lord in his humanity. So as a man being born like any other man or woman, Mary was his mother. So he's the son of Mary in that sense. Uh, So Mary is the mother of Jesus, but never, never, never is she referred to as the Catholic Church refers to her as the mother of God. Although Jesus truly is God, it is doctrinally inaccurate, and quite frankly, it's absurd to speak of God as having a human mother. God existed from eternity past, and he will endure for all eternity. God doesn't have or need a mother. Jesus, in his humanity, had a mother. And so, the fact that she's called the mother of Jesus is simply affirming the fact she's the one that gave birth to this human child, the incarnate Word of God, the Son of God, named Jesus. It's also interesting that it mentions his brothers. These are likely his half-brothers. In other words, other children that Mary gave birth to after the birth of Jesus. Further emphasizing the fact she was just an ordinary mother. She wasn't anything special in the sense that the Catholic Church makes her out to be. Certainly never, 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 never does the Scripture indicate that she is a mediator or mediatrix, as they call her. We don't pray to her. We don't worship her. And again, she was there in the upper room waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like all of the other disciples. They were not praying to her. They were not worshiping her uh, in any sense of the word. It just seems to mention casually here, oh, Mary was also there, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Now, we read in John 7 that while Jesus was still alive on earth, his brothers didn't have a very high opinion of him. But apparently, after his crucifixion and resurrection, they, as common sense would dictate, they became believers, as obviously Mary was also a believer here. They were all in the upper room waiting in faith for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. One of them would actually uh, write an epistle, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, James, not the same James that was an apostle, but the half-brother of Jesus wrote the epistle by his name, James. So, we've got the apostles minus Judas Iscariot. We've got some other women. Apparently the women that are mentioned in the Gospels who were following Jesus, ministering to him, and taking care of some of his needs as he moved about in his ministry. Now those women, together with Mary, uh, his half-brothers, and the apostles are all in the upper room. Uh, I've given some other scripture references there. You can study that more on your own, but we're not going to take the time. Now, we find that 40 days Jesus remained in his resurrection body with the apostles. Then he ascends up to the Father, and they wait until the day of Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost means 50. So there's a total of 50 days that have to be accounted for here. So there are going to be another 10 days of waiting, praying, tarrying in the upper room. And as I mentioned, we're not told a whole lot about what happened during those 10 days, but I can kind of imagine there would have been some prayers of repentance 
a lot of tears, confessions, getting things right uh, with each other until they were finally in one accord. And then the last part of Acts chapter 1, I'm going to just skim over parts of, but there is one or two important points that I want to make here. Let's go ahead and read this final section of Acts chapter 1 from verse 15 to 26. In those days, and this is during those ten days that they're waiting in the upper room, in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness, there's that word, a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. (coughs) Now, this whole section has raised a number of questions and created quite a controversy over the years amongst theologians and Bible teachers. I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time on this because it makes for good fodder for discussion and argument, but it really doesn't matter too much. It certainly doesn't change your salvation or mine, but it's interesting to look at it for just a few minutes. Peter is already emerging as the leader of what will be the new church in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up, and amazingly, he quotes a number of scriptures here to indicate, A, Judas's denial and betrayal and tragic death, all recorded in the Gospels, was fulfillment of prophecy. Every detail of Judas's betrayal and even his uh, suicide and details of his death that are given here are all quoted from the Old Testament. They were prophesied long before they happened. And also, Peter quotes this obscure verse saying, now someone else must take his bishopric, or his place of leadership. And the way Peter applies that, we need to find a twelfth apostle to replace him. And so, they bring these two men in, and we're not sure where Peter got these requirements or qualifications, but he says... They must have been with us 
the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out. Remember, there were other disciples besides the twelve. Luke is the only one that actually records that, that on one occasion there was another group of 70 disciples that were sent out to preach and to heal. So there were other disciples. Peter is saying it must be one of them. Somebody who's been with us from the very beginning, from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So spanning that whole three and a half years from John's baptism in the River Jordan right up to his resurrection and his ascension back into the heavens. He must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they came up with these two men, uh, Barsabbas and Matthias. They prayed, and then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So Matthias became the twelfth apostle. Now, before we look at the validity of what just happened here, let's look at a couple of other things. This is actually the first of many speeches that will be recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we actually find at least four different types of speeches, which I've outlined in the notes. I'm not going to look at all these verses. One very common type of speech that is found in the book of Acts is evangelistic, where they're proclaiming the message of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection. They're proclaiming the word of God. They're, They're preaching Christ. A second type of speech is the one given here. It's not so much evangelistic. It's more of a deliberative kind of a speech. Peter's just standing up and saying, you know, the scriptures say this and this and this, and though we should do this. So this is a different kind of a speech. A third type of speech that we find a number of times in the book of Acts is what we would call apologetic. Not that we're making any apologies for Jesus, but this is giving a defense of the gospel, giving a defense of the truth of God's word. And then a fourth type of speech would be more an exhortation. So we have evangelistic, deliberative, apologetic, and exhortation. So after the deliberation, they have now chosen a twelfth apostle to take over the apostolic ministry that Judas lost through his um, betrayal and tragic death. Before we look at that, let me come back to one more detail here, which maybe you haven't thought about before. We read in verse 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 I was pondering this recently, and I found it quite amazing. Because when you read through the Gospels, we read about great crowds, great multitudes that were coming to hear Jesus, to be healed of their sicknesses, have their demons cast out. Why don't we find multitudes and multitudes here waiting for the Holy Spirit? Just 120. That's not really very many. But you know, God spoke to me several things. There's always a sifting that takes place. God casts out the net. He draws in many, many fish. But then they're sorted out. Some of the good fish are sorted out from the bad. The wheat is always sifted and the chaff removed from the wheat. The sifting here, of course, was Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. A lot of people ran away and left him 
and never came back again. Matter of fact, even as early as John chapter 6, Jesus was preaching some pretty hard things, and it says many went back, many left him at that point, and he even turned to the twelve and said, if you want to go, you're free to go also. That's when Peter said, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have words of eternal life. So, to be very honest with you, at the cross, even the apostles had forsaken Christ. Jesus had hardly any following left. A few women, maybe, who remained faithful to him. And so even here, after his resurrection, he's risen from the dead, proving everything he had preached. He only has this relatively small group of 120 believers. You know, the Bible says in Zechariah 4, verse 10, that we should not despise the day of small beginnings. God often starts off small. He starts, starts off with small things, small groups, even small people. And from small things, he builds great things. But in the context, Zechariah 4.10 is referring to the rebuilding of the temple in Zerubbabel and Zechariah's day. And here's how it reads in the Message Bible. Zechariah 4.10 Does anyone dare despise this day of small beginnings? They'll change their tune when they see Zerubbabel setting the last stone in place. In other words, God's work often starts off small, but not so fast. Don't despise it. Wait till you see the finished product. And out of this small, motley crew of 120 believers that we saw included the apostles, Mary, the half-brothers of Jesus, and some other uh, believers. By the way, if you do the math, it works out pretty nicely. Luke says in chapter 10 that Jesus sent out 70 other disciples, and he has 11 of the 12 apostles, so if you add those together, you've got 81, and then throw in Mary, the brothers of Jesus, and the women, and maybe a few others here and there, it adds up to about 120. So that seems about right. All of the crowds have long gone. Many of them only came to get food. They only came to get a miracle. They didn't really come because they wanted to be his disciples. They didn't really want to follow him. And that's why in John you find Jesus rebuking them, saying, why are you seeking just food that perishes? You should be seeking food that lasts to eternal life, not just some temporary fix or just a loaf of bread to take home and eat. They didn't understand who this Jesus really was. So, we've got 120 that are about to become the foundation of this thing called the church. Just 120. And I made a list here, and if you're in any kind of ministry, any kind of leadership, <coughs> this will encourage you greatly. Because as leaders, we often look out and we don't have a very big following, or we don't seem to have a whole lot of fruit, and it's only natural to get discouraged and say, my goodness, I've been working here for 55 years and I've only got 10 faithful men in the church? Well, fruitfulness and what we would call ministry success has nothing to do with numbers. Let me repeat that. Fruitfulness and true success 
in the Lord and in ministry has nothing to do with numbers. We've gotten this thing all screwed up, and pastors are probably more guilty than anyone because we like to count. We like to look at numbers. And oh, when pastors get together, they love to compare their numbers. Oh, how many are you having in your church? We're having 5,000 now. How many are you seating in your new temple? Oh, we got 18,000. Like numbers mean something. They don't. Fruitfulness and ministry success obviously has nothing to do with numbers because Jesus didn't have real high numbers after his three and a half years of ministry. He's only got 120 true followers. Let me give you some other examples in Scripture. Jeremiah the prophet, arguably one of the most Christ-like prophets in the Old Testament. He was the most like Jesus of any of the prophets. First of all, he never got married. He remained celibate all of his life. He was a man of sorrows, just like Jesus. And <clears throat> at the end of his ministry, he only had one disciple, a lukewarm disciple named Baruch, who was still seeking great things for himself. <laughs> My goodness, I would be so discouraged if I was Jeremiah. But Jeremiah understood his calling was to be faithful to the call faithful to deliver the message, faithful to the Lord. And let God worry about the numbers, let God worry about the fruit. As I mentioned, Jesus didn't have one single faithful disciple left at the end of his three and a half years. The scriptures are very clear. They all ran away and left him. They all forsook him. How discouraging to spend three and a half years with Peter, James, and John, and all these other dudes, and then in the end, they're denying you, cursing, and running away, and hiding. In Acts 8, we'll learn about Philip. He had a great revival going on in Samaria. The whole town was in revival. And God calls him to leave all of that, and go out into the desert, to preach to one man, an Ethiopian eunuch. But you know what? Thank God he was obedient, because that one man came to Christ, was baptized right out there in the desert somewhere, and no doubt he went back to Ethiopia with the gospel. And I'm sure he couldn't keep quiet about Jesus, so he took the gospel to all of Ethiopia. We don't know how many souls the Ethiopian eunuch won to the Lord. And sometimes you may have just one faithful disciple. And God may even hide it from you, what he's going to do with that one disciple in the future. Think about the man who led Billy Graham to the Lord. We don't even know his name now. We all know Billy Graham. But Billy Graham was the fruit of that man's ministry. And no doubt, that man shares in the fruit and the glory of all that Billy Graham has done for the Lord. Let me give you a couple of other examples to chew on. When Paul went to Philippi, we'll read about that in Acts 16, and one of his epistles is to the Philippians. He went there because of this so-called Macedonian call. He, he had this vision of a man calling out to him from Macedonia, come over and help us. Well, the grand total of all of Paul's fruit in Philippi was two families that came to the Lord, Lydia and her household, and the jailer and his family. That's all. He just won two families to the Lord, and then he left Philippi. And yet later on, there's a whole big church there, and he's writing letters to them. The Bible says, one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. 
What he's looking for is our faithfulness and our obedience, not the numbers. In Acts 17, we're going to study later on, Paul went to Athens, Greece. He didn't even start a church there. He's a mighty apostle, but he couldn't start a church in Athens. It just depends on the city, it depends on the will of God, the timing of God, and so many other things. Paul might have left Athens all discouraged, says, man, I'm an apostle, I couldn't even get one church going in Athens. And we, if we're not careful, we can start looking at these things and counting and comparing with other ministries or other mega churches, and we also get discouraged. That's why the Bible says it's foolishness to compare ourselves with others. Don't do it. Don't compare your ministry with anyone else's. Compare your ministry with Christ and let him be your model. Let him be your example. The same Paul, who I think most of us would agree was the greatest apostle who ever lived. He wrote over half of the New Testament. At the end of his life, he was all alone. Everybody had deserted him. Everybody had left him. He was all alone. Listen to these words, and we're going to close in just a moment here. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. This is at the very end of Paul's life. He's about to die as a martyr. At my first defense... No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. What a thing! After all the churches he started, all the other ministers he trained and raised up, at the end of his life, everyone has left him. No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Again, what we're talking about here is after three and a half years of very intense ministry, Jesus only had 120 true followers. God often starts with small things, and very often he even begins with barrenness. So many examples in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, all these great mothers were all barren. They had to cry out to God, and they needed a miracle from God before they could produce fruit. And out of their barrenness, they did bring forth fruit, but it kept them humble, and it kept them dependent on God, and it did one other thing, and you see this clearly in the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, when she was so bothered that Penina, the other wife of Elkanah, was having all these kids, and she was mocking Hannah, saying, ha, 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 you can't have any kids. Look at all the kids I'm having. And this was making Hannah literally sick that she couldn't have children. Finally, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, says this to her. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In other words, God might be whispering to us, Don't I mean more to you than a big mega ministry? Don't I mean more to you than what the world might call a, a successful ministry that's on the front page of the Christian magazines and you can boast and brag and Facebook that, oh, we had 19,000 in our Sunday service. So what? God's not worried about the numbers. Be faithful and love him more than your ministry. Love him more than any fruit that your ministry might bring forth. God's way of measuring things is very different from ours. And I've told you my own personal experiences and I'm not uh, saying this is true about every ministry, but I've known a few very large, very successful ministries, at least that's the way they appeared, 
to the outward eye, but inside was a whole different story. Hidden sin, corruption, immorality, and all kinds of things. So just because a church has 20,000 seats um, doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. God measures fruit differently than we do, and he's often looking way, way, way down the line in the future what will be coming forth. And certainly that's true here with this group of 120. This thing is about to explode into thousands once the Holy Spirit falls on them. And the Bible tells us that the sovereign God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what the end of this 120 uh, believers is going to be once his power and once his Holy Spirit comes upon them. So let us be encouraged to be faithful to God in our ministries and take a lesson from Jesus here. He only had a following of 120 after his entire earthly ministry was complete, not to mention the fact he capped it off by rising from the dead. And even with all of that, he could only muster 120 believers together to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's seek him earnestly in these days. Let's keep waiting for the fullness of power promised by the Father for each and every believer, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And very soon, we're going to transition into part three, Pentecost and the birth of the church. How exciting. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we learn many things from this first chapter of the book of Acts, how they were being prepared for that great visitation of your Holy Spirit. They were meeting together. They were praying together. They came to a unity and a harmony where they were all in one accord. God, I pray that you can do that with us. Remove any divisions, any schisms, any ambitions, selfish ideas or thoughts that we might have. Let them all be cast down and crucified, that our only desire is to seek and please you and to see your glorious church raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as they were there waiting until they were endued with power, I pray that each and every member of your body, every true believer, would be filled, endued with the power of God so that we can all be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's soon coming King. God, seal these words in our hearts. Continue to speak to us. Continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we can have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Keep each one of us by your power now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.